The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Je vais, tu vas, il va. Nous allons, vous, allez. Oh, heck! What's the use of learning French anyway? Dick, I'm surprised at you. Language is the key to world peace. If we all spoke each other's tongues, perhaps the scourge of war would be ended forever. Gosh, Bruce, yes. I'll get these darn verbs if they kill me. Um, excuse me, sir. It's the back phone, sir. Yes, Alfred. Oh, boy, let's go! Good morning, London. It's Thursday, March 19th, 2015. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you until noon. Right wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to our show today, where you can always reach us at Just Right Media or feedback at justrightmedia.org to let us know if there are any subjects you'd like us to talk about or if you have any questions you'd like us to answer. That's something we get occasionally. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about. Hydro, just one. We just have one. (laughs) And that's the problem, the big monopoly we have, and the latest issues of higher prices. And they're talking about selling Ontario Hydro. You think that's really going to happen, Robert? I don't know. I don't think it'll matter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll see. And also inequality and the continuing assault on capitalism, something else we'll be dealing with. And we're going to start off on the theme of ignorance is strength, something we heard from a very famous book way back when. Isn't that true? That's true, yeah, if you've read it. Um, <laughs> mm, what book George Orwell, yeah. 1984. Um, and I believe, Bob, it must have been, uh, though, a modern contrivance. Not back in 1949 when 1984 was published, <laughs> but a modern contrivance of the left to try and sway the public to their argument by, as in 1984, redefining the terms of the debate. Now, prior to the 20th century, it seemed that political discussion was about ideas, and either side would try to defeat the other by the strength of their oratory and their prose. At least that's the impression that I got from reading about Mm. political debate back then and hearing the speeches. Now, lately, though, with the left unable to win the debate by intellectual argument, their tactic has been to make the words they use fluid and elastic in order to fit their argument. Often a word is redefined to mean the exact opposite of its original meaning. Now, according to the online Merriam-Webster, the word freedom, this is an example, means the absence of necessity, coercion, or constraint in choice or action. In a political context, it means the absence of the coercive power of government. Now, in an Orwellian attempt to redefine this word, the left will counter the argument for freedom with statements like, you mean freedom to be poor? You mean freedom to starve? Now, such dismissive refrains from progressives attempt to deflect the argument away from the proper meaning, the definition, of the word freedom. Freedom now means the natural consequences of inaction. If one does not work or has no means of support, he is poor, he starves, he dies. To any on the left who doubt this, I would ask them to try it. Orwell predicted this redefining of words in his book 1984, again published in 1949, just after the war. 
Freedom is slavery. War is peace. And ignorance is strength. Now, for the progressives, the goal is ignorance, which is being systematically brought about by the destruction of concepts such as freedom. And capitalism, I'd like to add for and my half yes, of the show. <laughs> yes, for the last half of the show, you're going to talk about how the word mm-hmm. capitalism has been usurped. The left in the United States often point to that phrase in the preamble to the, their U.S. Constitution, which reads, quote, to promote the general welfare, unquote. We've all heard that phrase. Mm-hmm. And they use it as license for the state to redistribute wealth. They neglect to mention that the word welfare used in the context that it was in the Constitution did not mean government handouts, but simply happiness, prosperity, and well-being. Tagging that word to socialist programs gave such programs the air of legitimacy in the Constitution, which was certainly not the intent of the Founding Fathers, if one was to read any of the other works that those Founding Fathers did. This is a case of the power of language when mistreated. People have been vilified and have even lost their jobs over the ignorance of the left and the people at large. Now, this is from the Washington Post. Get this, Bob. Mm-hmm. Quote, the director of D.C. Mayor Anthony A. Williams' constituent services office resigned after being accused of using a racial slur, the mayor's office said yesterday. David Howard, head of the Office of Public Advocate, said he used the word niggardly in a January 15th conversation about funding with two employees. Two of, uh, two of those employees were black. I used the word niggardly in reference to my administration of a fund, Howard said in a written statement yesterday, although the word, which is defined as miserly, does not have any racial connotations. I realize that staff members present were offended by the word. And he ended up falling on his sword and resigning. Ignorance is strength. In this country, the word rape has been all but outlawed. My use of that word on this show once prompted the controller at the time to hit the (laughs) delay button so that it didn't go out over the air. Keep your hand off that button, Bob. I had used the word with its original meaning of, quote, to seize and take away by force, quote, unquote, in a discussion of taxation. Yeah, you were talking about rape and pillage of the land. Um, no, I was saying that um, uh, Canada Revenue Agency was raping us when yes, it came in to... Yes, yeah. in that classic sense. To take the away rape and by force. Of the land. Yeah. yeah. That was, was the original definition of the word. Now, while... Um, it, you know, it, lately, though, it has come to apply solely, solely to the sexual act with violence. Um, and is still used in most of the world to refer forcible sex in Canada has been replaced by the left with the broader term sexual assault, which has come to include activities such as leering or simply touching without consent. As a matter of fact, uh, we were familiar with a, a fellow who was actually convicted of leering. Yes, that's right. Um, oh, at least Before the, a human rights commission. Yeah, yeah. about 20, 20 years ago yeah. or so. And the thing, out, the, uh, thing is that this poor fellow actually had hyper... Um, Hyper, uh, what, no, hyper, uh, hypothyroid, uh, thi- hyperthyroidism, okay. <laughs> which means, uh, of course, his eyes bug out. That, mm-hmm. That's a, a consequence of it. So he was actually, not, no, I shouldn't say convicted, found, uh, what's the word in a human right, cons- rights commission? Um, I, I forget what the actual word is. It's not guilty, <laughs> yeah. but it's something like that. But anyway, culpable, he ended up, culpable, whatever. Yeah, had to pay a fine. 
for having buggy eyes. State broadcasters in Canada and Britain, as well as the, the private but left-leaning media in the States, have teams of people whose job it is to ensure that the terms used in their broadcasts conform to the left's agenda to redefine language and expunge those terms which don't fit their progressive narrative. The use of the word prostitute has been all but banned to describe what is now called a sex trade worker. Of course, the word whore is right out. Recently, we have seen the word gypsy being replaced by Roma in an attempt to gloss over the criminal activities of gangs of gypsies, particularly in the United Kingdom. Other pejorative terms for ethnic groups are also on the decline outside of the schoolyards. And I would say this is pretty much a good thing. The list is long and I won't go into it here, but if you want to investigate it further, I would direct you to the comedic works of Don Rickles. Feminists have been hard at work reworking the English language to exclude the letters M-A-N from such words as chairman, which has become chair, and fisherman, which has officially become fisher. Don't believe me? Listen to the CBC. The change from actress to actor... Which is really weird, because the original meaning of the word fisher, there is a fish actually called a fisher. Is there? A, a species, yes. And I, I, I know there's to, a kingfisher, yeah. there's a bird. <laughs> yeah, but I thought there was a fish called that, too. Oh. Yeah. And now apparently peop- uh, fishermen are yeah. now fishers. <laughs> um, the change from actress to actor, another, uh, another change there, illustrates how this attempt to sanitize the language from the influence of mainly white heterosexual men has robbed some words of their meaning. Uh, the word man itself, which denotes the race of men, or man or woman in a general sense, has suffered from feminist editors. Such a simple sentence as, now is, the t- now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of their party, must now read, now is the time for all good men or women to come to the aid of the party. With women, of course, being spelled W-O-M-Y-N. Oh, yeah. Now, while most attempts to bring about a change in the public mindset is deliberate, intentional, there are examples of a natural changing of definition to fit a changing system of attitudes. The word gay used to simply mean joyful and uninhibited and was used without deliberate reference to homosexuality until about the 1960s-ish when it became quite clear uh, that it was a synonym for homosexuality. I consider this a pretty harmless adoption of one word to replace a more clinical term for sexual preference. Do you know what I'd like to know? Have you told me before? Nope. But how could I possibly? (laughs) I'd like to know why, oh, why, oh, why the word gay has been so ruthlessly hijacked from our beloved English language. (laughs) I agree with your question 100%. Gay used to be such a lovely word. A lovely word. Yes. (laughs) Can't use it anymore. It's been taken away from us. That's right. No longer can ordinary people such as we use an ordinary word like gay in an ordinary example of the great British sentence. Without people thinking that you mean puffy. It's a disgrace. <laughs> yes. And there's another one, you see. Puffy. You can't say that anymore. Of course you can't. <laughs> Used to all the time. Yes, but now... Now? People think you mean arse bandit. <laughs> arse bandit. Well, there, there you go again, you see. Well, of course you do. You know, arse bandit. Perfectly decent couple of words. That's right. <laughs> Used to use them every day. So did I. Would you care to have a go on the arse bandit? <laughs> Quite innocently. Yes, yes. Or, uh, back in a moment, darling, I'm just taking the arse bandit to the menders. 
But now, of course, nowadays, people think you mean homosexual. Right. Yeah. And there's another one. <laughs> when was the last time you could use the word homosexual in its proper context? Right. And it's such a lovely word. Oh, it's one of the great words. My, my word, Jane, I used to say to my wife, the garden's looking very homosexual as well. <laughs> lovely word. Great word. Yes, well, landlord, I'll have two foaming pints of your most homosexual beer. <laughs> Oh, and a packet of arse bandits as well. <laughs> and keep the chain. Right, yeah. But now... Nowadays... Well, people just laugh at you, That's they? right, that's yeah. right. Oh, well, I'm off to the dry cleaners to pick up a couple of screaming benders. Are you coming? Do you want not? We can get them home and go to bed with them. That's right. <laughs> So let's talk instead about flexibility of language, uh, linguistic elasticity, if you like. Yes, I think I said earlier that our language, English... As spoken by us. As we speak it, yes, certainly, defines it. <laughs> um, we are defined by our language, if you will. Hello, we're talking about language. Um, <laughs> perhaps I can um, illustrate my point. Let me at least try. Um, here's a question. Um, is our language, English, capable? Is English capable of sustaining demagoguery? Demagoguery? Demagoguery. And by demagoguery you mean? By demagoguery I mean demagoguery. I thought so. I mean, um, highly charged oratory, persuasive whipping up rhetoric. Listen to me, listen to me. If Hitler had been British, would we, under similar circumstances, have been moved, charged up, fired up by his inflammatory speeches, or would we simply have laughed? Is English too ironic to sustain Hitlerian styles? Would his language simply have run false in our ears? Um, may I compartmentalise? I hate to, but may I? May I? <laughs> Is our language a function of our British cynicism, tolerance, resistance to false emotion, humour and so on? Or do those qualities come extrinsically, extrinsically, um, from the language itself? It's a chicken and egg problem. Let me start a leveret here. Um, there's language and there's speech. Um, there's, there's chess and there's a game of chess. Mark the difference for me. Mark it, please. We've moved on to chess. <laughs> Imagine a piano keyboard. Um, 88 keys, only 88, and yet, and yet, hundreds of new melodies, new tunes, new harmonies are being composed upon hundreds of different keyboards every day in Dorset alone. <laughs> Our language, Tiger, our language, <laughs> hundreds of thousands of available words, frillions of legitimate new ideas, hmm, so that I can say the following sentence and be utterly sure that nobody has ever said it before in the history of human communication. Hold the newsreader's nose squarely, waiter, or friendly milk will countermand my trousers. <laughs> Perfectly ordinary words but never before put in that precise order. A unique child delivered of a unique mother. And yet, oh, and yet, we all of us spend all our days saying to each other the same things time after weary time. I love you, don't go in there, get out, you have no right to say that, stop it, why should I, that hurt, help, Marjorie is dead. Hmm? That's a 
Surely it's a thought to take out for a cream tea on a raining sunny afternoon. So, so to you, language is more than just a means of communication? Oh, of course it is, of course it is, of course it is, of course it is. Language is my mother, my father, my husband, my brother, my sister, my whore, my mistress, my checkout girl. Language is a, a complimentary moist lemon-scented cleansing square or handy freshen up my pet. Um, language is the breath of God. Language is the dew on a fresh apple. It's the soft rain of dust that falls into a shaft of morning light as you pluck from an old bookshelf uh, a half-forgotten book of uh, erotic memoirs. Um, language is the creak on a stair. It's a spluttering match held to a frosted pane. It's, it's a half-remembered childhood birthday party. It's the warm, wet, trusting touch of a leaking nappy. Uh, the hulk of a charred panzer. The underside of a granite boulder. The first downy growth on the upper lip of a Mediterranean girl. <laughs> Uh, it's cobwebs long since overrun by an old Wellington boot. <laughs> and, of course, that's Stephen Fry with Hugh Laurie, and nobody knows the English language better than Stephen Fry. Yeah. You know, you and I, Bob, our lives span uh, two, gen- two generations going on three. <laughs> so so uh, the younger listener out there may wonder what we're talking about in the changing language. If you're only within, you know, 25 years or, or younger, you haven't seen what we've seen in the in the change of language. Yeah, just wait till the next twenty five years. You yeah. yes, as a matter of fact, words that you use today will undoubtedly change. Um, probably some for the good, probably some for the better or, or the worse, worse. I should say. Uh, the list of changes to the language to remove any hint of offence, especially to the mentally challenged, who until recently were properly called retarded, is long. But here are just a few. Crippled, a perfectly good word. It has been replaced by handicapped, which has often been replaced with special needs. Retarded, as I just previously mentioned, was replaced by slow. Uh, I, I remember this. Yeah, we went through all these I stages. remember this. Yeah. I mean, if a person was slow, which is the word we sometimes use, he was recalled properly retarded, which is the actual definition of the word. And, of course, slow has been replaced by now challenged, which has been replaced in a true Warwellian firm in some places by the word gifted. So retarded or slow has now meant gifted. Absolutely uh, Orwellian. It's 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 beyond Orwellian. It's almost insulting. It is insulting. In a a roundabout way. Yeah. Uh, It's... um, Gee, I know what you are, but I don't want to say it because it's so so bad. I'm going to say something else. That's what I get out of it, yeah. you know. And we never, I never was brought up with, with uh, you know, s- so-called slow children, you know, being retarded or having a problem with them. I played with them a lot. I had a lot of friends who were well, called retarded. One one of our friends had polio, and he was quite, you know, almost like a paraplegic in some ways. Mm-hmm. And yet he was one of my best friends. I used to push him around in the go kart all the time. He used to love it, and I used to love pushing it him. It was and watching the joy on his face. It you know? It was only when people started to, I don't know, treat them with such um, reverence, I guess, beyond which their disabilities um, merited, that uh, it became a little insulting. Hmm. Do you remember a commercial, uh, I don't know, maybe go back 20 years or so, um, it wasn't a commercial, it was um, was on a kid's show, I think, where a father was saying, oh, look, that that soccer player out there is really good. Oh yeah, which one? Oh, well, the well, the one with the uh, the purple shorts and the and the and, and the uh, r- red uh, sneakers. Uh, uh, oh, the kid said. Oh, you mean the black man? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? And of course, the adult was a little embarrassed to identify the man by the color of his skin, yeah. and so it stifled. You know, it, he had to go through this rigmarole of trying to define who the man was that he wanted to point out because of his embarrassment of an, uh, or of his fear of offending. 
you know, um, like that, the word oriental, which means from East Asia, that's the definition, has been replaced by the word Asian because it too has been seen deemed racist. Uh, the fact that it refers to race as simply referring to race is not racist in the sense that a, like an Al Sharpton is a racist. It became uh, a problem when I was before the Human Rights Commission dealing oh, really? with, with uh, the Ilyev case, recall? Oh, yes. And there were Asian tenants involved. But Southeast the problem, Asian, yes. yes. but the problem was they weren't all from the same country, right. and they were enemies in their home countries. The right? Cambodians and Vietnamese, right. yes. Right, so when we wanted to distinguish between them, I was always told, I've got to talk to about them all as being Asian. I'm going, well, how do I tell the one from the other? <laughs> <laughs> to say someone is Oriental is not to imply that he is of any lesser value no. than a non-Oriental. It is simply an acknowledgement of race, not a value judgment of race. Only a true racist would suggest that it means anything other than its true meaning. Besides, Asia is a pretty darn big continent, and there's uh, a lot of Asians who don't look as what you and I would call Oriental. So there's a loss of that word there. There's the ignorance of strength again. Merry Christmas for the lefties has become season's greetings. I'm particularly irked by this one, even being an atheist. I celebrate Christmas and call it Christmas. That particular winter celebration is formed out of the traditions of several cultures and beliefs. The fact that it is celebrated by Christians and has come to be known as Christmas offends me, not in the slightest, and for anyone to suggest we stop saying Merry Christmas because it might offend someone who isn't a Christian is preposterous. We move now from words to the actual spelling of words. Now, of course, being in Canada, we're a little uh, sensitive to this, most of our spellings follow the British model, Color, of course, being spelled um, with a U and a center, being spelled C-E-N-T-R-E instead of the American C-E-N-T-E-R. It's funny with that one, I use both. Ah, I was just getting to that. Oh, okay. You know, because this can make, uh, well, mm. actually, it can make computer searches a little um, unreliable if you use one or the other. And is actually the reason you will see on our website the spelling of center in left, right, and center. Um, the way it is, the precursor to this program, by the way, spelled C-E-N-T-E-R. An acknowledgement to the fact that 90% of the North American English-speaking population spell it that way, and if we want to be found in a computer search, we better conform to the majority or risk obscurity. It's funny, you know, I actually see a different definition in the two centers. Really? Yeah. In C-E-N-T-E-R, I see that as a midpoint, middle between two things. C-E-N-T-R-E, um, like a community center, the Labatt Center. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a it's a place to go to. That's interesting. Yeah. And I've noticed that that's uh, quite often how they are used in it's in most discourse. I was going to say, is this just a, a, an imagination of yourself? Are you the only person who does uh, this? I or just is it I don't fact? know. Maybe I am, but I find it very easy to tell right away if I see the word C N T E R. For me, that means middle point. Ah. If it's R E, I know I'm not talking about a middle point. It could be out in the edge of the city, but it would be called you know mm-hmm. the White Oak Center. Let's say yeah. you know. Oh, Understood, yeah. Right. The United States owes much of its spelling mistakes to Noah Webster, of course, who, for largely political reasons, deliberately altered the conventional spellings inherited from Britain so that they reflected the independence of the American colonies. And this is from Wikipedia. Quote, Webster thought that Americans should learn from American books, so he began writing a three-volume compendium, a grammatical institute of the English language, The work consisted of a speller, published in 1783, a grammar, published in 1784, and a reader, published in 1785. His goal was to provide a uniquely American approach to training children. 
His most important improvement, he claimed, was to rescue our native tongue, in quotes, from, quote, the clamor of pedantry that surrounded English grammar and pronunciation. He complained that the English language had been corrupted by the British aristocracy, which set its own standard for proper spelling and pronunciations. Imagine the English language being corrupted by the English. Webster rejected the notion that the study of Greek and Latin must precede the study of English grammar. The appropriate standard for the American language, argued Webster, was the same Republican principles as American civil and ecclesiastical constitutions. This meant that the people at large must control the language. Popular sovereignty in government must be accompanied by popular usage in the language. So I wonder how many people out there knew that a lot of the uh, American spellings, such as plow versus plow, P-L-O-U-G-H versus P-L-O-W, it's because Noah Webster was a Republican. There is a more recent attempt by some to further alter the way we spell certain words, and this time it comes from Britain. This article is from the, uh, the Asian Age, and by Asian I'm not referring to the race oriental, but the continent of Asia. Are you sure? Just want to be clear about that <laughs> yeah. for all you retarded lefties out there. Quote, it takes English-speaking children up to two years longer to master the spelling of basic words compared with children who speak other European languages, unquote, said Stephen Lindstead, chair of the UK-based The English Spelling Society, TESS for short, an international organization that raises awareness of the problems caused by irregularities in English spelling. Lindstead and Tess believe alternative, sp- alternative spellings would make it easy to become proficient in English, and the organization has proposed an international English spelling congress to implement an alternative spelling system. The IESC will be held in early 2016 and will bring together linguistic experts from the English-speaking countries across the globe. At the moment, the society does not endorse any particular alternative English spelling, Linstead said. He said reform could change, a range rather from changing the spelling of 10% of English words to up to 80% of the English dictionary. Linstead acknowledged that making extensive changes to the English language would be a monumental task, but he hopes the IESC's proposal will eventually gain support. We do not underestimate the challenges. All spelling changes need or trends to be uh, tends to be resisted in whatever country it's proposed. Suggestions include changing that uh, end in ed to ending with t, that words that end in ed rather uh, to end in t, which would transform words like addressed and kissed to addressed a d d r e s t and kissed k i s t. Other changes include changing o u g h words like although and thorough to A-L-T-H-O and T-H-O-R-O and replacing the S with a Z sound in words like surprise so that they are be spelled how they sound. Surprise with a Z. I have this to say about Linstead's proposal. The spelling of a word often hints at its etymology and understanding the etymology of a word adds meaning to that word. To adjust the spelling by design for simplicity's sake is to risk the further dumbing down of society by removing historical clues as to the meaning of certain words. I'm also surprised that Professor Linstead had nothing to say about the silent K in knife. There have been attempts, some successful, some not without, contro- not without controversy, to change the orthography of languages, notably 
Russian just after the revolution where they got rid of a few letters from their Cyrillic alphabet, France whenever it feels insecure, and recently Portugal which adopted, oddly enough, the Brazilian orthography. But these top-down impositions of how people communicate in writing are precisely what George Orwell warned us against, even though the changes are supposedly designed to standardize spelling and make it easier. Efforts to change the English language run from the innocuous to the malevolent, but at every attempt I can't help but recall the appendix to Orwell's 1984. And this is from georgeorwellnovels.com. Newspeak is the party's minimalist artificial language meant to ideologically align thought and action with the principles of Ingsoc, by the way, that means English socialism, by making all other modes of thought impossible. Indeed, ignorance is strength, comrades. I can remember being in class, a teacher said, Cat, stand up. She said, Spell kitchen. So I sounded it out as I had been instructed to do. <laughs> kitchen, kitchen, K-I-T-C-H-E-N. She said, very good, very good, spell knife. Now once again, church, I sounded this out. T-N-D-U-A-S-A-P, when are you texting with a teenager? <laughs> Fully grown adult, actually. C-U-S? I'm guessing that's see you soon, but what is I-M-L-T-H-O? It means in my less than humble opinion. Your abbreviations are becoming borderline indecipherable. I don't know why, because you are obviously capable of being articulate. Language is evolving, Watson, becoming a more efficient version of itself. I love text shorthand. It allows you to convey content and tone without losing velocity. Okay, what am I doing here, anyway? You said it couldn't wait? We have been summoned to a meeting at the board of directors of Canon Ebersol. The investment firm? What do they want to see you about? I have no idea. Apparently Gregson recommended my services and uh, they won't tell me anything else until I've signed a confidentiality agreement. Um, is that what you're gonna wear? What's wrong with it? I'm pretty sure you slept in that t-shirt last night and um, the guys on Wall Street are a little more formal in the way they dress. Those are costumes. I loathe bankers. 
They rigged the roulette wheel of commerce, very nearly destroyed the world economy, and they still think if they wear suits, they'll be treated like respectable folk instead of the crooks that they are. Well, there you go. All bankers are crooks, and now there's a bit of crooked thinking about bankers and crooked logic and undefined floating abstractions were brought together in an essay that I read this past weekend by Glenn Pearson. Actually, it was on Friday the 13th that it actually showed up. Uh, you know, it's difficult for someone like me to read an article like this. It could have been, uh, you know, one of the many essays of the 1960s and 70s that you might find Ayn Rand just tearing the strips off of in her books like The Virtue of Selfishness or Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal. In her time, as today, there are great efforts being undertaken to make sure that capitalism remains the great unknown. And Pearson's essay is an example of one of those efforts. Appeared on Friday the 13th Free Press um, by Glenn Pearson. Carney warns elite about dangers of growing inequality. And he writes that the recent meeting of the global financial elite at the World Economic Summer in Davos, Switzerland, carried its usual flair for opulence, yet one group became the fly in the ointment. Oxfam International apparently pointed out that more than half of the world's wealth will be owned by the top 1% of individuals. It was a staggering claim and hinted that the economic order we have known and which has sustained the West for decades could be coming to an end. And then he goes on to say that to the traditional voices of, he's saying how everybody's coming to the same conclusions, and he says to the traditional voices of the Dalai Lama, Pope Francis, American Senator Elizabeth Warren, can be added the powerful input of economists such as Joseph Stiglitz, Paul Krugman, and Thomas Piketty, you know, all, all anti-capitalists. And of course, we heard what the Dalai Lama believed in last week. He's right into the rockness and the treeness of things, <laughs> you know? Yes. And then there's a compelling case of Mark Carney, he writes, the former head of the Bank of Canada, um, who's now the Bank of England's governor, of course. And he's, he, he said at this thing, and he's, quote, he's being quoted here by Pearson, quote, just as any revolution eats its children, unchecked market fundamentalism can devour the social capital for the long-term dyna dynam dynamism of capitalism itself, he began. And... Uh, you know, discomfort in the crowd was readily apparent, but he wasn't nearly fish finished. Quote, Carney, this is Carney again, prosperity requires not just investment in economic capital, but investment in social capital, he reasoned. He said to encourage individuals to take responsibility not only for themselves and families, but we have to encourage them to take responsibility for others. By reminding them, and this is now back to Pearson writing, by reminding them that capitalism was ultimately supposed to be about empowering and elevating people and not just financial fortunes, he had put his finger directly on the pulse of our growing economic problems. Should the current dysfunction continue, it will overpower much of good and shared wealth capitalism built in the previous era. Well, having read both Pearson's essay and the quoted comment by Mark Carney, I don't know whether to laugh out loud till my side split or just cry in the face of such irrationality and contradiction. Being heard within the top levels of government and by formerly elected and currently elected politicians. You know, this kind of fuzzy thinking in the absence of definitions or clarity of intention by those making public statements is the source of the dysfunction that 
Pearson's referring to. The political name for the dysfunction is collectivism, which has various subsets of names like fascism, communism, socialism, and all of their subsets of names created to hide the true immorality of what's being promoted. We refer to the morality of such systems, at least you and I do, Robert, as being evil. Yeah, <laughs> that's what it is. Simple. What, what all of these collectivist systems of thinking have, singularly in common, besides their use of initiation of force, is their hatred of capitalism and the morality of capitalism and what that represents to their political, social, and religious fantasies that they would like to force on the rest of us. The one thing that's definitely not the source of the dysfunction is capitalism, because capitalism just doesn't exist anywhere that they say it exists, so it can't be causing those problems. You know, there are so many things in Pearson's essay that are just plain wrong, I didn't even know where to start. But first, he has this hypocritical defense of capitalism by saying, should the current dysfunction continue, it will overpower much of the good and shared wealth capitalism built in the previous era, as if he ever cared about capitalism as such. And capitalism's not about shared wealth. <clears throat> the fact that wealth happens to be most equitably distributed in capitalist environments is a consequence, not a cause or a purpose behind capitalism. Non-capitalist collectivist societies have more inequities than you can count, and not all of them are economic. Many are social because in collectivist societies, individuals are given status. In free individualistic societies, individuals have rights and freedoms, meaning the right to use force to defend, to defend one's own life, liberty, and property. Second, inequity is not an issue, as long as you have a free society, meaning a capitalist society. To say that more than half the world's wealth will be owned by the top 1% of individuals is meaningless, even if it's true, and I'm not that sure it is. If it means that 1% produced and created half of the world's wealth, well, then that distribution is right and just. If it means that 1% of the individuals in the world confiscated that wealth by outright theft or monopoly status, then it is indeed a problem. But it's still just the symptom. The cause is socialism, communism, fascism, or any other variant of statism or collectivism, to whatever degree it may exist. Yet you won't find a single one of these words in Pearson's essay, but you do find the word capitalism mentioned a few times. Three, if people like the traditional voices of the Dalai Lama, Pope Francis, American Senator Elizabeth Warren, etc., are to be cited as authorities on the fact that there might be an inequity of wealth, which is obvious and meaningless, let's not forget that these are the among, among the groups who were into the rockness and the treeness that we discussed last week on the show. I can't really accept people who think like that as having any authority on economic matters. Number four, just as any revolution eats its children, unchecked market fundamentalism can devour the social capital for the long-term dynamism, what am I having a problem with that Dynamism, word? Bob. Dynamism, dynamism of capitalism itself, says Mark Carney. So what is unchecked market fundamentalism? Is there a word for that? A market fundamental is freedom. And that's about it. Freedom from coercion. Now, how do we check this to make sure that we don't have this freedom? And what is social capital? Sounds like a red-green or a square round or a triangular circle. The two words do not have any direct relationship with each other. Social implies a group or collective. Capital implies property and or money. Put them together and what do we get? Collective ownership. The proper word for this is Communism, plain and simple, or socialism, which means the same thing, 
Get your dictionary out. Check those two words. They mean the same thing. And number five, prosperity requires not just investment in economic capital, but investment in social capital, says Carney. So having just defined those words, we now know what he's saying is what we need to have is communism to achieve prosperity, according to his reasoning. And finally, by reminding them that capitalism was ultimately supposed to be about empowering and elevating people, not just financial fortunes, etc. Well, capitalism's not about either of these things. Capitalism is a separation of the state from economics. For the same reasons that we'd like to have a separation of the state and religion, without which we would have what we call a theocracy, which is a monopoly of a different sort. And of course, capitalism is less about distribution of wealth than it is about wealth creation, where there was no wealth before. This is its singular thing that separates it from everything else. No other system can claim to be a productive system. All of them are destructive to production. That's what they're there for. They're there to reap you know, redistribute, like they call it. We call it stealing, if it's not done through market means. And, you know, all of the other economic and political systems also operate on some variant of a fixed pie theory combined with another variant of some labor value theory, both which have been proven to be demonstrably false and repetitively proven so. So obviously evidence appears to be irrelevant to the motivations behind this kind of thinking. Now, I want to thank our listener, Trevor, for providing us with a link to this following gem taken from a black-and-white film made by Coronet Instructional Films back in 1948. The subject, What is Capitalism? We've only taken a small excerpt out of that film for today's show, but it's worth noting that the discussion you're about to hear takes place in a setting not so unlike what Robert and I walk into each week here on the campus of Western University at CHRW Radio, at a student radio station, 1948, located of all places, in a high school called Western. No. <laughs> well, look, we still have a few minutes before we go on the air. Can't we agree that capitalism is an economic system, a system for the production and distribution of things we need and want? I won't agree to that. Not until you say something about government, too. There has to be a legal basis for any economic system to operate. Well, it's easy to see that you have different ideas of what capitalism is. Maybe we should talk about what it is not. It is not a system of strict governmental control and planning in which a dictator or board tells people what jobs they may hold and, and what goods they may produce. And it's not a system of government ownership. Let me tell you about something. It shows that the basis of the capitalistic system is private property. It happened when Eleanor and I went down to get the things for the class weenie roast. We went to Mr. Brown's store. Mr. Brown really owns property. All those store fixtures and the groceries in there. And, well, the whole store. It's his property, and he can do almost anything with it that he likes. We needed weenies. Mr. Brown had weenies. It's as simple as that. You might argue about his prices. Anyway, Eleanor did. But after all, he has a right to earn something for the goods and services he supplies. And he does supply services as well as goods. That's how a capitalistic system operates. The people own property and use it to provide the goods and services that all of us need. That's what I mean about government. Mr. Brown's very right to own property is guaranteed by our Constitution. Yes, but we'll build this the whole point to what happened at Mr. Brown's store. And Mr. Brown has property, all right, but that's not what he's interested in. 
He's in business to make money. There's the basis of the capitalistic system, the profit motive. And just think of all the others who made a profit on those weenies. Cattle growers, meat packers, shippers, distributors, they're all in business to make profit. Of course they make a profit. And it's a good thing. That's the incentive that makes capitalism work. To give us more of the things that we need. That's the incentive that other economic systems lack. I think you've both missed the point. It's competition. Under a capitalistic system, you're free to make almost any kind of a contract with anyone. Freedom of contract. Competition, profit motive, private property. And what do they all add up to? Free enterprise. Well, that's what capitalism is. A system of free enterprise. Well, now tell us what free enterprise means. All right. It means that you can go into business wherever and however you please. Anybody can go into any business. Any legal business, that is. But I still say you can't leave government out of the discussion. Government must at least guarantee the right of private property and freedom of contract in order that... Quiet, you... please, everybody. We're on the air in a few seconds. My name is Jim Fouts. I'm the chief investment officer. This is Daniel Cho, our chief financial officer, another in-house board member. Yep, you're all chief of something. What do you want? The gentleman we spoke to, a uh, Captain Gregson, he said that the NYPD couldn't get involved until Peter had been missing for two days. He also said that you were the finest investigator he'd ever known. We'd like to hire you and your uh, uh, associate. Bodyguard. Luckily for you, Mr. Fouts, I have a hole in my schedule. My usual private consulting rates will apply, of course, multiplied by a factor of 12, shall we say. If you're wondering if I'm worth it, I could provide a demonstration if you'd like. I'm fairly sure, for example, that these two are sleeping with each other. You really should be more careful of your body language. And you, for some reason, have recently used a solvent to remove fingernail polish from your hands. 12 times your usual rate will be just fine. I will need access to Peter Talbot's office, his computer. My secretary will be happy to take you down there right now. I'll be outside if you need me. I don't think I've ever seen you so happy back in the conference room. Mastering the masters of the universe. Bit of a letdown, actually. I think I could have got 20 times my normal rate. What is your normal rate? Oh, I don't have one. Remind me to make one up before I leave. <laughs> make it up before you leave. Well, that seems to be what they do with Ontario Hydro. They make up the rates as, as, as they go along because there's certainly no market discipline there at all. And, of course, you know, Hydro One, you ever think about that name? It, it doesn't imply a monopoly r right there, Hydro One. It should have been called Hydro Just One, you know. Mm. Although it has many subcategories and divisions within it where they've created all these corporations to hide the disaster that the original Ontario Hydro was, which was all the debt. And uh, so, in any case, there was an interesting, you know, controversy about Ontario Hydro or Hydro One, talking about, you know, when selling it putting that feeler out to see if they're going to sell any portions of it. Saw an editorial by Peter Epp in the Free Press, Ontario, or a Hydro One sale would deliver needed cash. And in the first paragraph, he writes, Ontario citizens have little to fear from Hydro One. 
that uh, or from the sale that's partially or mostly owned by private investors. It would l likely remain a monopoly under private hands, just as it has been a monopoly as a public utility, and would be no more fearsome than it is now. Well, that scares the hell out of me, leaving it as a monopoly. And he says, uh, he says maybe they're not even going to sell it. Maybe they're only floating it. He says he thinks that uh, you know they're just trying to gauge public reaction, and it could be the government doesn't really have a clue what it wants to do. And he points out how, um, you know, Ontario Hydro is in big trouble. They're just trying to get cash on a, on a fiscal basis month by month because Ontario has been living on borrowed time and money for years, he says. Letter writer William from Newmarket wrote to this, he said, regarding Peter Epps uh, Hydro One sale, uh, the only reason anyone would buy Hydro One is to maximize profit by raising rates. Premier Kathleen Wynne says she would control prices. Why would anyone buy Hydro One when Wynne has a veto? That's a good question. Why would anyone buy Hydro One? Well, to make a profit. Since it's not a market transaction, the profit would have to be built into the contract or agreement in some way, which is why, under monopoly conditions, it's not really correct to call this kind of profit a profit in the true sense of the word, both in the moral and economic sense, a profit is something that can only be earned, and when you earn something, it's because you acquired it consensually. You didn't use force to compel someone to provide you with your income source. And that's what legitimizes the word profit. You know, but this letter writer's concerns with rates being raised is perfectly legitimate and understandable. He has to pay those rates. But his belief that profits are maximized by raising rates is completely erroneous if we're talking about an actual private ownership situation. Private ownership, by definition, includes not only ownership of the property in question, but also control of the property in question, particularly the price at which you want to sell your own property. You can't have somebody else setting prices. Under those conditions, no one can just raise their prices in a free market because consumers would go elsewhere or pick alternate legal sources of energy. And let's never forget, uh, you know, everything's about profits and losses, even within monopolies. It's just that you don't see them. And losing is an important part of the capitalist system. It's how the waste and the lack of expertise in a given field is automatically filtered out. Ontario Hydro should have been declared bankrupt years ago, and its investors should have been taught a lesson. Don't lend money to governments who want to go into business. Boy, would we have cheap power today if the warnings of Freedom Party back in the mid-80s would have been heeded. We're in for a shock with Ontario Hydro, we warned. And unfortunately, the fix, the monopoly, was already in, and that was long before Mike Harris muddied the monopolistic waters. Now, I could easily spend a complete show commenting on so many aspects of, of this whole situation. But both the PCs, you know, the PCs have been in on this as well. The PCs agree that there's climate change is a real threat. And uh, they say the party would re support the motion that scientists and leaders of G8 countries recognize the need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and to transition to a low-carbon economy. Now, I could never sign up or agree to such a proclamation because it would be offensive to me in, ex in the extreme, offensive to my reason, offensive to the knowledge I've accumulated on the subject, offensive to my values. And so, but the PCs are going right along with this, so there's really no um, opposition in, in, the, in the legislature. All we've got is progressive, progressive PCs, progressive liberals, progressive... Um, uh, NDP. NDP, or progressive Democrats, if you want to call them that. 
But how anyone can believe that leaving Hydra One the way it is can possibly be better than getting rid of the whole kit and caboodle is beyond me. Right now it's losing money by the billions. It has no profit to show for anything, only a lot of debt that we hostage-held consumers are being forced to pay as part of the price, now a major part that we pay for electricity. Price increases have been relentless, and lots more of this planned for the future. Um, you know, how I don't know how the letter writer can reconcile the reality that prices are skyrocketing under a state monopoly because, you know, it makes no profits and claims to offer power at cost. There's no such thing. Power at cost is one of the big lies that we've been sold. The lie that there is no profit being made under this arrangement. If there's no profit in the equation, then profit to those companies who have a monopoly actually becomes unlimited. They can make as much as they want so long as they don't report it as a profit. So they ensure that their costs rise to the point where they make sure that there is no profit, so they can say that they're offering a service at cost. Hence, the outrageous corporate CEO salaries, severances, pension plans, high union wages, all paid for not just through the prices that we're paying at, for electricity, but in the prices we have to pay in the future and for all the borrowing and loans, you know, the debt retirement charge and things like that. The power at cost argument is, in fact, nothing more than a contradiction, just like we've been talking about. It's a con game. London Hydro makes a profit, for heaven's sakes. Samsung makes a profit. And, you know, the bottom line on profits is, just as Isabel Patterson always explained, profit and production are the same thing. If you haven't created a profit, then you haven't produced anything. And that's how you measure production. Now we have this scary article from the March 5th Free Press, Peak use electrical charges may rise, reads the, uh, the uh, article by Antonella Artuso. And apparently they're now saying that they've got to raise the, the rates of the daytime uh, power rates because there's not enough of a financial incentive to change customer electricity patterns. Uh, you know, this is outrageous to think that Energy Minister Bob Chiarelli has made it explicitly clear that Hydro One is not like any business at all. Businesses exist to serve their customers on the customer's terms, not the other way around. Not to force them to buy services on their terms. No, nope, we're only going to give you power at night, so you've got to buy it at night. And, you know, then they tell us that we're going to save money. We're going to save all kinds of money by not using power at peak hour. Well, a magician couldn't have pulled a sleight of hand any better than that argument. Save more money? There's no money being saved by anyone. Look, if you raise the price of peak electricity to, say, double or triple what it is now, that's the money you'll be saving by not using power then. You haven't actually saved any real money. Suppose that you said that, you know, well, we're going to make electricity cost a million dollars between the hours of 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. That would be a really good incentive, wouldn't it, <laughs> to not use it then? And then, of course, that means if you didn't use electricity during those hours, then you saved a million dollars. <laughs> right? Or why not make it two or ten million? And then you could say, hey, we've saved two or ten million dollars. <laughs> right? Do Dr. Evil. Yeah, you can see how it just doesn't make sense. But then as soon as you get down to pennies per kilowatt, it doesn't bother people. The principle is no longer there. They, don't they no longer see how silly the argument is. Because for some reason, you know, once you get down to pennies, the, the principles just get lost. People don't see it in, uh, for, for the danger that it is, and they're not afraid of it. But, you know, under this system, the contradictory logic of Energy Minister Bob Chiarelli's economic theory, those who use the least power at any time of day pay the highest price per kilowatt hour. It can't be any other way. The less you use, the higher your price per unit. 
Even if you use nothing, you still pay dearly for just having the power connected to your home or your business. So what's the real objective behind all of this uh, you know, time of day pricing distraction besides the higher prices? If saving energy were the real objective, I mean, you could just cut off electricity to everybody. You know, they do this in some countries. They have brownouts, and I understand they're doing it in parts of Ontario now. My daughter's in Brazil, and she's saying that they are doing that with water down there. Oh, uh, when I used to ration. Down, when I used to go down to Trinidad in the seventies, it was always the power was off every afternoon, mm-hmm. and because they were giving it to industry. You know, and this is an oil-producing country that shouldn't have issues like that. And if, ener- you know, if reducing energy consumption is an objective, why not just raise prices across the board? You can do the same thing without having to put in all these stupid smart meter costs. And by the way, if you really wanted to have a true incentive, why not lower the off-peak prices to near zero? We're, you know, right now we're paying to give electricity away to the U.S. <laughs> why can't we give some of that to ourselves? But that's a s- another issue. The sad fact is the only objective that these politicians have is they want to maintain the state monopoly over electricity. Costs, prices, and other consequences be damned. And to give us the illusion of choice, monopolies often offer, you know, one or two variants in pricing of the product. And in so doing, they can falsely claim that they're putting power into the hands of consumers, which is a completely fraudulent assertion. We're not getting rid of beer and wine monopoly, but hey, we'll allow a few grocery stores and other outlets to share in our monopoly. This way we're offering choice and convenience to consumers, which is completely fraudulent. Being permitted two or ten choices when there are otherwise thousands of choices to be had is not offering choice, it's a continued denial of choice, which is what monopolies are all about. Were it not for internet or satellite technology, I'm certain Canada would still have only one, two, or three television networks, each duplicated in French, and all taxpayers subsidized. The CRTC has become an irrelevancy. So you can see how we are living in a completely monopolistic society. We do not live in the capitalistic society that we keep getting told we are living in, and it's not capitalism that's the problem. What I have to laugh at, Bob, was uh, the union guy who said that if you get rid of the beer monopoly or the LCBO monopoly, it's going to increase violence against women. Maybe the hydro thing will oh. increase violence against women too. We Un- don't know. Unbelievable. It's possible. But, but it's true. That's, that's the kind of logic we're getting around. But, you know, if we want to change people's ideas, and it's true, Robert, you said it before, we have to take control of the language and vocabulary that we use. We can only do that by sticking to clear, consistent, and essential definitions of the key concepts that have to be defended. We'll never reach the ideal of a free and capitalist society until we understand what those words truly mean and just as importantly, what they do not mean. And for my part, I did not mean to keep us so long. So join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. Hey, and be right back here. We'll see ya. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be what happened to the bathtub and the sink? Yes. They were in the house when I bought it, weren't they? Uh, yes, and there was a kitchen sink. Too. Uh-huh, and they are not there now. Now, where are they? They're on the truck. <laughs> Those are mine! Well, you can have them. Well, for $25. <laughs> if they were in the house when I bought it, they belonged to me. Did you read your bill of sale? I did. 
All it said was, I sold you a house. And that's what you got, a house. Lisa! No. I'll see you around. Uh, wait a second, I'll give you $15. No, $25. they are not worth $25. Well, they are if you need them. All right, $25. In advance. Just want to keep everything above board. Oh, oh, oh. 